The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we are people who rejoice because you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, if we were left in darkness, we would uh, we'd be in nothing but despair. We have hope. We are a people that are filled with rejoicing and a hope for a future because you have secured it through the blood of your Son. Lord, as your people gathered here together, help us to, to come to know that more fully today as we, as we have gathered together your church to partake in the, the wonderful elements of living life together as a Christian body, partaking in the Lord's Supper here after some time, singing songs like we've been doing, coming together in prayer and opening up the scriptures together. Bless this time, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would guide it and direct it in a manner that is most helpful for those who are gathered here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat and take up your Bibles. We'll be preaching from Genesis 28 today. Where we begin today, I believe, is captured well by Paul's statement that knowledge puffs up but love builds up in 1 Corinthians 8.1. I say this because acting upon knowledge, knowledge gained in an unceremonious fashion, has brought Isaac and Rebekah and their household to a place of utter devastation. No one in their right mind could take a look at Isaac and Rebekah's home and Jacob and Esau and say, that's the kind of family I want. No way. The husband and wife relationship has some major issues. Rebecca has manipulated and deceived her husband while leading her youngest son along a dubious and and most uh, uncouth path. Isaac is unable to see, but that doesn't mean he lacks the ability to discern what's been happening all around him. Last week, he clearly declared in the text that we went through that Esau to Esau that Jacob had come and deceitfully taken the blessing that was rightly meant for the older. And the blood of Esau is boiling over. He is so angry that he's ready to kill his younger brother Jacob for all this going on. And then the Hittite daughter-in-laws are now just being used as a convenient excuse to get Jacob out of town as quickly as possible. I even think that both Isaac and Rebekah saw this as just an expedient way to move Jacob along and get him out of the threat range of Esau as Esau fumed in his anger. This is why I say Paul captures well what is going on here in Genesis 28 when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love 
builds up. Everyone in the Isaac and Rebekah house has a bit of knowledge. And they are operating from that place. And it is completely puffing things up. While no one is attempting to build up in love. We want to learn from our study that when we pursue what we want in and through the power of our own wits and our cunning, it most definitely doesn't lead to a building up in love. But God, as he jumps directly into this story, into Jacob's life, pushes through all of this nonsense and declares reality. That's what God is good at doing. He declares reality because reality is the world as God sees it. And that's what he does. He plainly declares to Jacob that he is the one to take the Abrahamic promises. And he does so in a declaration of grace. Again, Paul states, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That was declared last week when Seth preached. And it was quoting from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. God is at work. And it is without a doubt that deceitfulness, cunning, using our wits, accumulating knowledge are a constant threat to our relationship with God and with others. Because we use these human devices to control our environment, or we attempt to control our environment. I mean, how many times have you thought, just one more time, then I'll stop? That's deceiving yourself. Or how about, they will never know I got my way at their expense because I'm more aware than they are, and they're just too dim to see it. That's relying upon your cunning. How about relying on your wits to get out of trouble? Thinking fast and peddling what needs to be heard in order to deflect what you know is headed your way. You're using your wits. My nemesis, accumulating knowledge. Thinking I can figure out what is really going on. I can make myself and others aware of what is happening in any given situation. The challenge of this is no accumulation of knowledge is enough. And it also plays right into the current lie of our age, which is always peddling more and more content. There's an unceasing amount, an unending torrent of content. When I take a step back, and when all of you take a step back, and, and you take a step back from these tendencies that I just mentioned, that we're prone to, and I mean really stop and take a step back and, and realize, like, I don't want to use that. I don't want to rely upon my cunning or my wits or my ability to build up knowledge or even to, to deceive others to get what I want. To take a step back from that allows us to change our focus. It gives us a wider aperture. We get to take a step back and look at things from a different perspective. And it changes us for the better because when we take a step back, we tend to ask a more fundamental question, such as, where is God at work? What is God up to? Then, friends, we have the privilege to turn towards him and then go towards him and say, that's where I want to be at work as well, where God's at work. And away from our foolhearted attempts to control our environment using deceit or cunning or the building up of knowledge or just relying upon our wits. And this is how God grabs a hold of us. 
He says, just look and see where I'm at work. And when you do, it's going to be compelling and you'll want to join me there. He grabs a hold of us and our long-term tendencies of our life don't just melt away, unfortunately, and we know that. They go away slowly, but they don't vanish all of a sudden. That's not how God typically works. But through the process of sanctification, which can be quicker in some areas and slower in others, we are morphed into the man or woman that God is intending us to be, that God is calling us to be. In the the passage today, elements of all that I have just shared are present But the inescapable and most captivating aspect of the chapter is not the human. It's not the human at all, but it's the divine. Like I said, because God enters into Jacob's life. The heavens are opened. And angels can be seen ascending and descending. And God simply declares what he will do. And he does it. He's faithful. What we witness, church, is mercy over merit. Jacob clearly doesn't deserve the favor of God, but that is what he gets. God's choice is for Jacob. No matter how much deceit or how much conniving or jockeying for position has happened, nor does it matter how much will happen, for surely God knows our hearts and is indeed greater than our hearts. So though the consequences of his actions bring about a very real and ugly result, and that's just left slightly to the south of him, as we'll get to here in a a little while. But the internal purposes of God are advanced. Taking this all in, this leaves us recognizing from the passage that we're hopeless in our flesh, but overflowing with hope in God. Hopeless in our flesh, but overflowing with hope in God. Dependent upon God's grace. And it's toward this end that we will see God's word takes us as we go through Genesis 28. Going through this passage, engaging in the study of God's word, we want to end up hopeless in our flesh, but overflowing with hope in God. In terms of an outline, working through the passage... Knowledge puffs up, verses 1 through 11. Love builds up, verses 12 through 22. Two parts with a a hinge going from away from the work of man towards the work of God. So we'll start with knowledge puffs up. And I'll contend that Isaac and Rebekah recognized that they had a real problem. They had a real problem on their hands. Jacob has, with the help of his mother, cheated Esau. Completely cheated Esau out of the patriarchal blessing that Isaac was intending to bestow upon his oldest son. Additionally, the wives, now this kind of comes in as to be convenient, the wives Esau has taken have become a real source of consternation for the family. Remember, Esau took Hittite wives from the land. So what is left to do? Well, they need to get Jacob out of the picture because Jacob's about to get killed by his older brother Esau. Get Jacob out of sight. Simply move him 
along and maybe the problem will start to resolve itself and maybe even over time, peace could be brought back in to the home. Maybe, just maybe. We'll see how this plan works out. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So those are the first two verses. They have a problem. And this is what I mean by moving the problem further away. An expedient solution. Get Jacob out of here. Just get him out of here. You see, when Esau was 40 years old, we read back in Genesis 26, he took, daughter, or he took uh, yeah, daughters from the, the Hittites as his wives. He took Basemath, the daughter of Elon, and he took uh, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, And the text says that through these women that he had married, life had become bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac and Rebekah, with this knowledge, knowing that Jacob is in great danger, come up with a plan of get him out of here. We're going to send him away. And then last week, after hearing of Esau's plan to kill Jacob, it seems like Rebekah just completely sidesteps all of her involvement in, in getting Esau so angry in the first place and just kept, you know, kind of just pushes aside the root cause of why Esau's all fired up. She doesn't even acknowledge that her goat-wrapped younger son Jacob deceived blind Isaac and that she played a role in that. Instead, she focuses on where she's at. I loathe my life, is what she says at the end of Genesis 27, because of these Hittite women. So then they cook up the plan, and away goes Jacob. So here we go. Everyone being knowledgeable of the mess, they're not oblivious to what's really happening. They're knowledgeable of the mess that's in the family, and they grab a hold of a plan that will simply move Jacob out of the blast zone of Esau's anger. Send Jacob up north. It's conveniently overlooked by Isaac and Rebekah that this was far, far from Abraham's idea. So Abraham did something similar when he was looking for a wife for Isaac. But back in Genesis 24, when he sent his faithful servant up north, he forbade him from allowing Isaac to leave the promised land because Abraham was embracing what God had said and said, no, this is the land that I have given you and to your offspring. And so he doesn't allow the servant to take Isaac out. And when the servant does go, he leaves with a caravan, 10 camels full of gifts laden for a a, a bride price to be paid. They don't do anything like that. Instead, just get Jacob out of here. In order to get Jacob away or anywhere near Esau, they deem it's worth the risk. Just get him out of the promised land, get him out of here, send him up north. But clearly, Jacob is the promised one, stated by the Lord. We as a a church know this. We've been studying God's word. We know that this is part of God's plan. 
Even as the Lord declared to Rebekah in Genesis 25, 23, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The younger being Jacob. And we know this is to be true just from simply the study of scriptures as well as the other Bible knowledge we have of of the unfolding of God's plan. Jacob is God's chosen one. But that being said, the effort being undertaken is not foreign to us, is it? We observe an issue, much like Isaac and Rebekah observe an issue. Maybe for us, it's the public school system. We observe there's issues in the public school system. You notice that the school has continued to change, moving away from, from teaching just the the standards, and pushing ideologies. And we notice that as a people. We say, this isn't right. They're pushing ideologies instead of subjects like reading and math. I say this because currently, demonstrated proficiency in reading and math, not even required to graduate in the state of Oregon to get a high school diploma. That was signed into law back in July. This leaves you as a parent in a real predicament. Do you leave your child there thinking, I can undo the seven hours of indoctrination that my child gets while they're sitting there? When they come home, we'll have a re-education plan. Or do you push for change through the school board or by becoming a substitute teacher? Because that field is open to all who have a high school diploma. And apparently, if you graduated from a school in Oregon, that means you didn't even have to demonstrate reading or math proficiency but you could go be a substitute teacher in that high school because of there's a, the state of emergency that we've put ourselves in. So you see how this reasoning is working out in the school system? Not too well. It looks like a downward spiral. But as a parent, lastly, you decide enough is enough. So you determine no way will my kid be a part of that school system. So you get your son or your daughter out. You just remove them altogether. You know, I'm not using this example to pick on anyone's school choice. These problems are widely known. All I'm trying to highlight is that apart from reformation, the problem will remain. In some form or another, the solution of taking our kids out of the schools is valid, but not, does not get at the root cause of the problem. Our nation has turned away from God. The root cause of the problem is we've tried to remove God from our lives. Nationally, we've turned away from God. And that doesn't work. It never works. This is the same with Jacob and Esau. Until their relationship is made whole through a reconciliation process where God is back in the center of their relationship, there's going to be ongoing strife in that family. But this is not what is embraced by Isaac and Rebekah. So they send him away. Move Jacob along. Move the problem out of sight. However, an important step is taken by Isaac. In addition to the patriarchal blessing, which is what what, uh, Jacob stole, basically, deceitfully took, was the patriarchal blessing... 
In addition to that, Isaac goes a step further here. In sending Jacob away, he also bestows upon him the Abrahamic blessing that was being passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. That's what we read in verses 3 and 4. God Almighty, this is uh, Isaac declaring this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. This is right and good for Isaac to do this. And although I'm placing this section clearly where the human effort is, is at work, knowledge puffs up, this is, this is good. And even in the effort to push the problem away, the reality is nothing is done apart from the sovereignty of God. God is in complete control. Truly the motives here are unknown. To us, but the working is clearly of the Lord. And this will be touched upon more in the second half of the sermon. Jacob now has the blessing that was handed down from Abraham to Isaac. It's now placed upon him by his father. This blessing is upon him. How much does he value this is unknown, but it is declared over him, it is stated. In verse 5, we continue, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah's, the brother of Rebekah's, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So he sends him away. The problem, out the door. The possibility of Esau killing Jacob is greatly diminished. And the bonus maybe not having any more Hittite daughter-in-laws is an additional benefit. So everyone's going to win in this scenario. Not all of, now, now all of this is observed by the older brother Esau. He's taking this all in. He gains knowledge as well, and he responds from what he learns in a very fleshly manner. Look at what Esau does in verses 6 through 8. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he blessed him, as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, we'll stop there for now, so Esau is taking this information in. He's building up his knowledge, and he's going to act from that position. Esau is observing all of this. He's, he's seen it unfold. He's just had everything stripped away from him, away from him. Truly, it appears like the hand of the Lord is against Esau, which it is, and for Jacob, which it is. The older brother has despised his birthright, so it was taken from him. He has also had his blessing taken from him through the conniving efforts of his mother and his brother. Now, you can't jump too far ahead, church, even that you know, you know the story, you know this is what God's intending. 
But right here, where we're at, even though we know truly that uh, Jacob was loved and Esau was hated, that Esau responds, not from that position, not in awe of what God had proclaimed even when he was in the womb coming to pass, but he continues to pursue a fleshly solution to his problem. Seeing that the Canaanite women are not pleasing to his parents, he decides to take action. So before I get to that, for those who are curious of the relationship between the Canaanites and the Hittites, because from the text we know that, that uh, Esau has married Hittite women, well, Canaanites have a lot of subgroups. So there was the son of Ham, or Ham was the son of Noah, who had Canaan. And then from Canaan, are the, there's a bunch of people groups, but they're all known as the Canaanites. So from Canaan, you have the Hittites, the Sidonites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Simites, the Arvidites, the Semorites, and the Hamathites. So there's a lot of peoples that come from the Canaanites. So if you were curious where that comes from. But back to Esau's plan. Instead of clearly thinking about God's rejection of Ishmael, which we've also studied as a church, we see it clearly in Genesis 17, 18 through 21. Ishmael is not seen as a natural offspring any longer. He still has some blessing. He still has some protection from God. But it is supposed to be the son born from Sarah and Abraham. That is the, the son of the promise. Ishmael is rejected as a natural offspring of Abraham. And instead of embracing the one-woman marriage relationship that God has instituted from the beginning, from creation, what do we see? Esau doubles down on polygamy and takes a wife from the offspring of Ishmael, as seen in verse 9. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. That's what Esau does. But Jacob is also content. His younger brother, Esau's younger brother, Jacob, content to be away, away from the threat of being killed by Esau. And I think it was a rather quick departure because we're going to get to it in a few weeks, but in Genesis 32, Jacob says how he crosses the Jordan on this northbound journey with only his staff. That tells me it was a pretty quick departure, not a whole lot of baggage going up north with Jacob. And this is quite different, like I said, from all the camels laden with presents that the faithful servant of Abraham had taken north in Genesis 24. Jacob departs with just his staff. Nonetheless, Jacob is content to be away. The blessings are his. He's obtained them through his own conniving, through his efforts. His life remains and it seems like the favor of his parents is upon him as well. In verses 10 and 11, continuing in the text, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I picture him a little bit timid here. Out in the open sky, we know that he was a man of the tents. He liked being around comforts and the tents. 
But I also picture him a little bit smug and satisfied that he has pulled off such a feat as to get the birthright of his brother, to get all the blessings that culturally belonged to his brother, and to have all of this declared over him. So he is getting ready to go and sleep away from the harm that his brother intends for him. But cultural, cultural or not, what we turn our attention to now is not really the focus, is, is, I'm sorry, is what really is the focus of the passage. God jumps right into the middle of this mess. Everything that is going on, God jumps in and he declares what's going to happen to his chosen vessel. The person who is clearly without merit, which is Jacob, but is his chosen recipient to be used to bring along God's plan of redemption. He is a recipient of mercy. This is where we're getting into the second half and we're going to look at how love builds up in verses 12 through 22. Jacob has put himself to bed for the night, rolled in his tunic a stone under his head like some kind of a pillow. And in the vulnerability of the night, in the vulnerability of the night, Jacob has an encounter with the Creator God. Creator God reveals a scene that could never be put out of his mind. Look at verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So a lot of translations use the, the word ladder, but uh, it should have a footnote that it also could be a flight of steps, and that's what most commentators uh, think it is, is, is more like a, um, a temple that would have a big flight of steps going up towards, ascending towards heaven, something like that. This is what he's dreaming. And it's like when Nathaniel declares Jesus is the son of God in John 1.51, and Jesus replied, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the vulnerability of the night when Jacob cannot have his full defenses up. His cunning, his conniving, if you will, like these are his, his shields. These are his shield mode. And when you're asleep, a lot of times your shields aren't fully up. The vulnerability of the night. He's asleep. And during this time is when God gets his attention. God gets his attention and declares, verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it or beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The promises that we've been looking at as we've been working through Genesis, 
all heaped up by the Lord, creator God, and deposited firmly upon Jacob, his chosen one, squarely upon Jacob's shoulders. And they're even expanded. Notice how God says to Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. God is clearly directing his own through this night vision. I so enjoy the nights for this reason. Never having experienced anything like what we see in the Bible or here with Jacob, I haven't had that kind of a vision. But still, like many of you, God has used the nights in my life to impress upon me by his Holy Spirit certain things, to impress upon me the need to pray for certain people when I awake. Or he'll put a a scripture right in front of me and say, you need to take a look at this more carefully when you fully awake, and so on. And in these, I'm delighted in them, but I'm also terrified by them at times because it's, it's God working. And uh, that's a, a terrifying thing. It's, it's an aspect of the night that I embrace, but also can be in, t- in terror of. What's God going to reveal? In this case, with Jacob, God is standing over this sleeping man while showing him these angels ascending and descending from heaven. And he provides the promise of keeping Jacob wherever he goes. It's magnificently declared by only the one who can, and that's the king of kings. God directs his own. Jacob is his, and he's going to direct his life. Church, this is the first time, but certainly not the last time, that God speaks directly to Jacob. And so appropriate for our start of Advent as well. To be reminded that God is not afraid to engage the lives of men and women. Most poignantly displayed when our Savior, Jesus Christ, was sent to be born of woman. To live the perfect life. To provide the atoning sacrifice for all who have been given life on this earth. You see, transcendent God is not above interacting with mere image bearers with us. What we see throughout the Bible is his constant engagement with people and working with them in spite of their imperfections to draw near to them and to to do that on his own accord. He's bigger than all of our sins and he can work his plan and can bring himself glory all while still holding us accountable for our sins, for our actions For we all suffer under the curse of the fall. And sin is a blight upon this world. But the only cure is faith in Jesus Christ. And the cure is introduced by God. He reveals more and more of himself throughout time and throughout the unfolding of scriptures. Here in Genesis, we see it. And and how does Jacob respond to this revelation that God wants to be involved in his life? And how do any of us respond when God first starts grabbing a hold of us? Well, it varies. It varies depending on who you are. And if you've never responded to Jesus and his call in your life, I would expect that your experience would be unique as well. But what is standard 
is being set free from the bondage of sin. Sometimes it is rapid, a rapid release. You no longer have any craving for what has captivated you. But other, others, it's done over time. Like rust eating away at the chains that hold you. The cure is there, but it takes time to work. Paul writes in Romans 6, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as we take a look at this, this is the spiritual reality. This is what is really happening. God is working, but it's not always manifested in the ways we would think are proper and Christian. Right, Christian? But who are we to say that God is not working properly? God meets each of us exactly where we are. You do not have to clean yourself up, make yourself presentable, in order to trigger God to then respond to you in some way. That's not how God works. That is why I have said in the passage that we clearly see that it's mercy over merit. For we are more like Jacob than we like to admit. He responds when he awakens in a very Jacob way. And I respond to God in a very Nathan way. And you respond, put your name in there, in a very you way. And this knowledge can do two things. It can cause us to belittle the responses of others to God's calling in their life. Or it can cause us to grow in our appreciation for God's love as demonstrated by his mercy and how vast it is to cover a diverse group of sinners, such as the collection that's gathered here. As a church, of course, we want the latter. We want to grow in love and to build each other up in love. But back to Jacob. His attention has been arrested by this night vision. He recognizes the encounter was with the one true God, and he wakes up with a reverent fear. That's what we read in verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And the text says he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And we can see how he would think that. I mean, he's seen this stairway and angels ascending and descending and God there speaking over him. This is a good response. However, what is really idiomatic Jacob is the vow he takes in the morning, which we'll get to in a moment. In verses 18 and 19, it describes him setting up a stone. So this stone that he had slept on, all of a sudden it's like, well, this must be special, so I'm going to set it up like a pillar. And then he anoints it with oil, and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. And these are what you might expect from this type of man in this type of place in this period of history. But the vow, the vow reminds us very much of what a coherent Jacob would do, 
Once he's gathered himself, he's got his wits back about him, now what's he going to do when he, when he engages with God in the morning? Well, typical Jacob, he makes a deal with God. And it just seems to come out of, out of nowhere. Like, it's kind of out of place. In the night vision, God unilaterally declared what he was going to do for and through Jacob. And yet in the morning, Jacob works to sweeten the deal. Okay? This is what we see in verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. As we witness this vow, it's not too hard. Let's not be too hard on Jacob. Because like I said, God interacts with us as us. God's interacting with Jacob as Jacob. And I find it quite interesting that a little bit later on, we'll get there in a couple weeks, God has heard every word of this vow. And even as we were encouraging in the prayer circle down before service, God hears every word of our prayers. So even this vow that was spoken, God uses to identify with Jacob later in Genesis 31 He identifies with every word. And he says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. So God uses this vow to then say, oh, Jacob, like now that I'm talking to you again, I'm that same God that you stated the vow to in this very particular way. Just very gracious. Just receiving the way Jacob interacted with God And turning it back on him and saying, okay, now it's it's time for another step in your faith walk. It's amazing. God directs his own, but does so in an individualized way. Love builds up, and God is love, and he builds us up, church, and praise God for his tenderness toward us, for we would be absolutely crushed under the weight of his perfection if it were not for his mercy. Now, to apply this very idea to building up in love, the idea planted in the beginning of the, of the sermon, of course, we want to see everyone grow in faith. And if they do not know God, we want to introduce them to him. But one sure way to get off course in a hurry is to load people up, load someone up with requirements. But church, the faith that we exercise is profoundly simple. We are in desperate need of salvation, for the wages of sin are death. What then is required? To heed the call upon your life. When you are summoned by God, you respond in faith, trusting Jesus for salvation. Then repeatedly doing that, recognizing that the gospel is for you, not only from your first response, but every day until you take your dying breath, 
here on this earth, on this side of eternity. And I say this as we, we draw to a close, and it should be obvious that the, the Bible does not teach that the Christian life is like an endless vacation, for it is not. But the Christian life is simple. Preacher C.H. Spurgeon captures it in this manner. Quote, to become a Christian is to enlist for a soldier. To become a believer is to enter upon a pilgrimage. And the road is often rough. The hills are steep. The valleys are dark. Giants block the way. And robbers lurk in corners. The man who reckons that he can glide into heaven without a struggle has made a great mistake. No cross, no crown. No sweat, no sweet. No conflict, no conquest. End quote. Ultimately, what we are after as we look at Genesis 28 is to determine what a walk with the Lord looks like. To determine, is Jesus Lord of all? Or do you as a sinner think that you retain rights that are not yours? Clearly in the passage, no matter what the human response might be, it is God who grabs a hold of those who are his and directs their life. He indicates that it is what he is going to do with Jacob. He's going to take a hold of Jacob and he's going to direct his life. And friends, that is why I urge you. I say, throw yourself at the feet of the cross in humble submission to God. Recognize today that it is mercy over merit that is needed. And it is by God's grace that you are here to receive the truth of the gospel once again. For we are hopeless in our flesh, but overflowing with hope in God. For God is love, and love builds up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious. Uh, what a, a beautiful love story you portray throughout the pages of Scripture. When we take a look at who you use, we're thankful that you did not try to pick someone perfect, for we would all be dismayed. But you pick people that are so much like us, caught up in sin, trying to make things work out for them for the better controlling, conniving, using deceit, trying to spin things a certain way. God, this can be us so often. But the way you work is to jump right in the middle and say, I don't need you to, to try to put on a show for me. I've chosen you and you are mine. God, we throw ourselves down at your feet and say thank you for showing your mercy, your grace, and your kindness in such a manner. Forgive us for where we try to do things on our own, to build ourselves up in our flesh. Lord, we desire to be spirit-filled believers, trusting in you and trusting in your word to walk through this life. Give us what we need to do just that. Help us to put away our flesh every day and to rely upon the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.